1: This week, a conversation about impeachment. We try to learn all about it with constitutional scholar Kim Whaley. Five,
2: four,
1: three, two, one, zero, ignition.
2: Major Garrett.
1: Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? One, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. Lots of different points of view expressed here. And this week we're just going to try to learn. We're not going to ride the turbulent waves of the news cycle on the impeachment inquiry of President Trump. What we're going to try to do is learn some basics about impeachment as a process, what the Constitution says about it, what history tells us about it, so we can have kind of a primer on whatever the screaming headlines might be in the weeks or months to come. Where are we? We're at Il Canale. Uh, which is a wonderful Italian restaurant, also here for lunch. We were here a couple of months ago for lunch. I will be having the Meat Lover's Pizza because the pizza here is off the grid. We'll get that in a minute. Jenna, our fabulous waitress, will be here. Uh, and a little bit of other business I want to take care of before we get to our guest, Kim Whaley. Just want a big shout-out to Evan Smith and all the people with the Texas Tribune. They invited us down to Austin for the Texas Tribune Festival Trib Fest. We interviewed Admiral William McRaven, we hope you enjoyed that program with our live audience at the Paramount Theater. Fantastic experience for us. So grateful to Evan Smith and everyone at the Texas Tribune for having us down. Also, last week I was on the road doing a little bit of travel on behalf of my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. Gave talks at the the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, and the Richard Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. Met fans of the show there who spontaneously in the Q&A section talked about the takeout. Great to meet those friends of the show. Thanks for listening. We keep true in the show for you, and it was a great pleasure to meet you. So, I've gone on for quite a while. Let's get to the guest, Kim Whaley. Who is Kim? Well, she'll tell you in a minute, but she is a constitutional law expert and professor, a career in law, which I'll let her describe. Kim, it's great to have you. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me, Major.
1: Summarize your career briefly for our interested audience.
2: So I am a law professor for the last 10 years, and I write about the separation of powers, and I wrote a book recently called How to Read the Constitution and Why. So I'm an educator, but I started out as a clerk for a federal judge. Then I went on uh, to work for Ken Starr on the Whitewater investigation. I worked for a federal agency, the Federal Trade Commission. I was also an assistant U.S. attorney at the uh, DOJ in Washington, D.C., And then I went into private practice. So I've done all kinds of things across the law.
1: Excellent. So, uh, and one of the things we're going to do on the show, folks, is we're going to give you a feeling of what impeachment has sounded like in the past. The Nixon impeachment and the President Clinton impeachment. Because I want you to understand how differently things sounded then as compared to now. We'll get to those sound bites in a minute. But just as a Threshold question, Kim. What is impeachment? What did the founders intend it to be?
2: Impeachment is a means of removing the president and his appointed officers. It's not just the president of the United States, um, but the vice president can be impeached. Cabinet officers can be impeached. Federal, With, judges, can be federal impeached. judges can be impeached. Federal judges can be impeached. It's to remove people from office without a lot of drama, without a coup, without something that is severely traumatic, On the country, the idea is, and the standard is, uh, high crimes, misdemeanor, bribery, treason. If in that instance there's a political judgment that this person is not adhering to the principles behind the Constitution, then maybe he or she needs to find another job. We're not talking about putting someone in jail. Um, We're talking about essentially firing them.
1: Firing them because their conduct in office is injurious to public trust in the carrying out of those duties, essentially. Essentially, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the framers thought of this as a remedy for what? Or to protect against what?
2: Well, to protect against someone who's in a position to abuse the massive power of the office. Now, remember, uh, the framers were in the wake of the American Revolution, and the revolutionaries fought against... King George III a monarch who had the power for example to come into people's homes and issue what are called on on what are called general warrants we are just curious about what you have in your house and of course now we have the 4th amendment that protects against that kind of fishing expedition but essentially the constitution itself is about limiting the government's power against we the people against regular people it doesn't really protect people in office. The notion is, the framers understood, uh, power is its human nature to amass it, to entrench it, and to abuse it. And so the f- Constitution includes the impeachment clause to ensure we have an accountable presidency that answers to the people and not to his or her self-interest.
1: You mentioned treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanor. The first two, pretty self-explanatory. Bribery, that's easy to wrap your head around. Treason, that's easy to wrap your head around
2: is high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, high crimes and misdemeanors is, it, it? we do have the term misdemeanor, of course, in criminal law. But the framers did not have in mind exclusively that we're talking about a crime. And this is what's different from, say, the Mueller investigation and talking about indictments. The The standard for impeachment is lower the standard and also even the burden of proof, what we call the burden of proof at trial for a, uh, a criminal investigation, would be beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to be almost 100% sure that this occurred. For impeachment, the Senate acts like the trial. The individual senators can apply a lower standard, something like preponderance of the evidence. And it might be appropriate because, again, we're not talking about putting someone in jail or executing them. We're talking about not... Continuing with the job, and I did want to note one thing on treason because that word gets thrown around. Technically, treason requires some an, an ongoing war, uh, some kind of active of war that's ongoing, and then basically aiding the enemy. So that's something more technical than high crimes and misdemeanors, which really boils down to what the current Congress believes is the line that's been crossed.
1: Right. Uh, If you look it up, folks, you just type in on your Google machine, Gerald Ford impeachment, you'll come across a quote attributed to Gerald Ford, not when he was president or vice president, but when he was a member of the House of Representatives, saying as such, impeachment is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives decides it is, an impeachable offense is.
2: That's absolutely true. And and one of the questions here, Mm -hmm. we hear a lot about things going to the courts for resolution. I assume we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, But it's possible, it's conceivable, a court would say... Impeachment is so political, it's so about the elected representatives that the courts aren't even going to get involved. That's called the political question doctrine. But that's the nature of this. This is really about Congress acting on behalf of the American populace to ensure that their elected officials are functioning for them and not for their own self interest.
1: I want to play some sound because I promised the audience this. This is from December 12, 1998, the Well of the House of Representatives. Then, House Minority Leader Richard Gephardt. I ask the majority, one last time, to reconsider what you are doing. We are deeply offended by the unfairness of this process. You are asking us to consider the most important act the Constitution calls on us to do. We are considering overturning the free choice and vote of over almost 50 million Americans. Later in that speech, Dick Gephardt called this a radical maneuver. Is there something radical about impeachment? The House is essentially interposing itself between the will of the people expressed in the last election. And the president sitting in office.
2: Well, it's not meant to be used itself as a political lever uh, to kick around the, the, the whatever party happens to have in the, in the White House. It requires a very high standard. That is, two-thirds of the Senate have to vote to actually convict, and that's and never happened. And remove from office. And right. remove from office. That's that's the outcome. So radical. Uh, it's not radical to the extent to which we're hearing that it's somehow itself unconstitutional. But it's, no, it's of in course, the it's in the Constitution. But it is a rare, rare uh, sort of event. It's not meant to be used regularly um, for the reasons I think. Although for those of
1: us of a certain age, meaning me, born 1962, I'm now about to live through the third impeachment saga of my life. To say it's rare is true, but it's becoming less rare. We'll continue that end of the conversation when we come back for segment two with Kim Whaley. I'm Major Gareth. This is The Takeout. CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: The resolution authorizes and directs the Committee on the Judiciary, acting as a whole or by subcommittee, established or designated for this purpose, to investigate fully and completely whether sufficient grounds exist for the House to exercise its constitutional power to impeach Richard M. Nixon... President of the United States of America.
1: That voice is Peter Rodino. He was, at the time, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. What he was describing, that soundbite from January 31st, 1974, was a vote in the House of Representatives to authorize an impeachment inquiry. If you've been following the news lately, there's been quite a dust-up in here in Washington about whether or not that is required and the fact that this House of Representatives, under the leadership of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, hasn't taken such a vote. Kim Whaley is our special guest, constitutional law expert. The Constitution doesn't require it, the rules of the House don't require it, but precedent says it's been done before. Ought it be done now? That is to say, a vote from the House to say we're starting this process.
2: From a legal standpoint, no. I think Nancy Pelosi is correct that, that they can set their rules under the Constitution for how the impeachment process works. Uh, I do think there's some legal benefit if this does go to court. That is, the question of whether the White House needs to comply with congressional subpoenas. I think the answer to that is yes. But I do believe there's case law that would suggest that if she holds the vote the Congress's argument will be a bit stronger, but it's not required. Because
1: you will have the institutional voice of the entire House
2: authorizing the process. Authorizing, I think, is the terminology. And again, this is what we call dicta. It's not a holding. It's not a requirement. But it could be something that a court pays attention to.
1: Jenna is here. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm very easy on this. The meat lover's pizza, please. Thank you.
2: I will do a salad with salmon, please.
1: I want to play another soundbite for you again from that era. Um, People may or may not remember, the Nixon impeachment inquiry uh, actually began in the Senate uh, and then it was formalized because the House has to go first if there's a full impeachment process. And I want to play for you again, this is sound of an impeachment of a different era. This is Sam Irvin, who was the chairman of the Select Watergate Committee, Democrat from North Carolina, July 13th, 1973. The Committee feels that your position, as stated in the letter, measured against the Committee's responsibility to ascertain the facts related to the matter set out in Senate Resolution 60, presented the very grave possibility of a fundamental constitutional confrontation between the Congress and the presidency. We wish to avoid that if possible. Consequently, we request an opportunity for representatives of this Committee and its staff to meet with you and your staff to try to find ways to avoid such a confrontation. We request an opportunity to meet with you and your staff to avoid such a confrontation. Why, why is that important? Because this is the way it can happen. Congress and the executive branch can at least try to hash some of these things out. And that seems to be not the course of action going on currently. Kim, your thoughts?
2: Well, that was a different era, I think, in lots of uh, ways with respect to the Congress more collaboration, more across the aisle, more committee work. Um, we're in an extremely divided Uh, world right now with this Congress where substantive legislation on a good day isn't coming through, and uh, any kind of conflict in our lives works better if we're willing to compromise, and unfortunately that is something that is arguably broken in the Congress, and we're seeing it right now where it's uh, from the Republican standpoint, from the White House, um, it's brass knuckle tactics across the board, and the Democrats aren't reaching out either to try to figure out a way um, to do this in a bipartisan way.
1: And you can hear in Sam Irvin's words and voice the sense that this is a big task they're about to undertake and that they want to at least appear and by word indeed did appear to be trying to be less confrontational than more confrontational at least up front does that matter in a any light does that matter legally at all or is that just a political thing i
2: think it's a political thing but we saw this uh recently with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings as well, where people got very, very upset in American electorate because they felt that their voices, those on the, uh, the sort of more progressive side, were shut out of the process by virtue of how um, the Senate actually conducted the process, you know, not, not turning over all the documents, doing a sort of truncated FBI investigation. And what hurts there is into the legitimacy of the Congress and in that instance the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and we all know with any institution with your kids baseball team you want to believe that it's fairly run if you feel like it's fairly run the outcome if your kids team doesn't win you you go home you have your pizza and you go home you don't get outraged and upset
1: so uh, along the lines of fulfilling my promise to give you lots of sound and texture from impeachment's past I want to run Ellie uh, do this for me run seven And eight in a row. The first voice you will hear is Henry Hyde, who at the time was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Republican from Illinois. Then the next voice you will hear, then White House Press Secretary Mike McCurry. This is in the heat of the impeachment battle over Bill Clinton's fate. I want to bring this matter to closure as soon as possible. The timetable I've proposed today is the most expeditious schedule we can follow. I urge everyone to be patient, allow our system of law to work. On the face of it, Chairman Hyde looked every bit uh, the reasonable gentleman that he is, and I think the American people will hold him accountable to that very important standard he set today, to be fair and to be bipartisan, if not nonpartisan, and to conduct uh, these proceedings uh, under the rule of law. Frankly. those who have watched these proceedings, and we who have watched these proceedings, do have some concerns. So, audience, I think I don't need to tell you that there is a moderateness, at least in the inflection of the voices you just heard. The matters, uh, as grave as they can be. The constitutional questions, just as important. And yet the tone and the deportment is in open contrast to what what we see today. And Kim, you were a part of the Ken Starr process. What are your memories of that time and that this clash?
2: So at that time, when we were inside the investigation, every day there would be a Xeroxed sort of memo of what we called the clips. So the primary um, news outlets would be, the, the top articles would be photocopied and circulated to the lawyers. That was in a pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-tweets, pre-24-hour news cycle, uh, so there was more containment and more careful messaging to the American public, and that I think there was an also probably a little less um, benefit from sort of giving sound bites that seem really tough. I'm not really sure how to reconcile that. I think historians are going to have to think long and hard about how uh, the digital world has changed our constitutional structure. Uh, But it it certainly was, there was fights between the White House and the White House and uh, Ken Starr's office, Uh, but it it, it was under the radar to a large degree, uh, and we didn't have... The, the eyes on us 24-7 and the whole, you know, online environment.
1: Right. And I don't want to pretend, ladies and gentlemen, that this was just one gentle game of patty cake. It wasn't. These were high stakes battles. There were intense personalities, fights over the law, fights over process, fights over access to information, testimony, etc. both in the Clinton and Nixon impeachments. I don't want to pretend otherwise. But I do think the way this sounds matters and the way we hear it matters and the way the because that is in part how the country digests this
2: Yeah, and I I mean, the the letter that came out recently out of the White House Counsel's Office suggesting that, you know, the impeachment process itself in some way, the way it's being conducted is unconstitutional. And there are a lot of legal problems, for example, with that letter. And I remember being inside Ken Starr's office, and most federal government lawyers, including inside that office, would really think about the long-term implications. Um, In the instance with Ken Starr, it was, what happens if we try to, to basically get Communications between um, Hillary Clinton and her lawyers as if the, what, whether the attorney-client pri- pri- privilege would protect her, for example, even though she was an employee. That was a discussion that was about the broader structure of government, the implications of taking a particular stand, not just for that office, not just for the win. But for posterity. But for posterity and the integrity of the system as a whole. And I've, frankly, as someone who worked in government um, and now is just an academic, I've been really stunned by the positions that have been taken by government lawyers that really are not consistent with the best interests of the integrity of the Constitution itself.
1: We'll pick up that line of uh, dialogue on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Il Canale. Our pizza is, my pizza is on the way. Your salad's on the way, Kim. <laughs> Back in a moment for segment three. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett Again, this episode is devoted to learning about impeachment, not riding the tidal wave of headlines that will come crashing over my head and yours in the next couple of weeks or days, or maybe if I check my iPhone the last hour. We're going to just step back a little bit and try to learn as much as we can, but one development that's important this week and will be important for the duration is this letter sent by the White House to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And I want to quote from one part of it as we talked to Kim Whaley, our Constitutional law expert about this. Uh, the president's letter cites a lot of grievances, uh, conducted the investigation in secret, no due process, no access to witnesses, no ability to cross examine, etc., etc. I want to quote this For these reasons, President Trump and his administration reject your baseless, unconstitutional efforts to overturn the democratic process. Your unprecedented actions have left the president with no choice in order to fulfill his duties to the American people, the Constitution, the executive branch, and all future occupants of the office of the presidency. President Trump and his administration cannot participate in your partisan and unconstitutional inquiry. Under these circumstances, is that a legally defensible position?
2: I don't think it is, actually, because right now we've got Congress investigating uh, what happened with the Ukraine July 25th call and and surrounding circumstances. And one of the
1: underlying questions is what happened to congressionally approved military aid?
2: Sure. Congress has
1: a relevant role to play in finding this out.
2: Absolutely, and, and the framers are really worried about foreign interference in American electoral politics. And a lot of people in this country care a lot about protecting our borders from immigration. Uh, this is protecting the sanctity of our electoral process from f- outside influence. And so both because of the financial piece, the four hundred million dollars that was withheld um, from the Ukrainians for a reason that Mitch McConnell didn't wasn't aware of but said majority he said he said a right? yeah, majority leader, but also because this really does go strike at the heart of democracy itself that is we I, I for myself i want to know when i go to the polls that my vote is my vote and that i'm and my my fellow americans are making a decision to um with respect to how our government's going to go not some foreign leader that doesn't have my interest in the interests of americans at heart that's squarely historically within uh the the boundaries of the Constitution and the congressional impeachment prerogative. So I think that's a vast overstatement.
1: Does it trouble you at all, Kim Whaley, that so far the House, uh, the way it's organized this, is not allowing what was allowed during the Clinton impeachment process and the Nixon impeachment process, counsel for the president, access to exculpatory evidence, cross-examination, and full participation in the process?
2: Well, in, you know, I, I'm not a legal historian, but the, both of those impeachments were slightly different in that for Nixon, there was not a trial. Um, for for Clinton, we had the Whitewater investigation where the Congress was handed a, a very hefty manual, yes. and also the grand jury materials were turned over. So Congress was kind of ahead of the game. Here, uh, Congress is not. They're kind they're sort of doing the spade work as a threshold matter. And as you indicated, a lot of times this stuff, in Ken Starr's office, for example, was resolved with amongst the branches so right. so there was a subpoena to Bill Clinton for the, from the grand jury he uh, originally was going to fight the subpoena then there was an agreement he he did testify before right. the grand jury he didn't say no way make me I refuse go to court
1: Bill but, Clinton as his defenders will say if they were standing right here provided blood evidence
2: yeah so, so this to was, confirm the
1: DNA of the underlying question about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky,
2: which it's hard to conceive of as a regular person of something more viol- violative, right. of your personal self than your own blood, um, which is a, a criminal concept. And I know they talk about due process in there too, which is really problematic. Um, it, on both sides, it would be ideal and optimal if um, if there were some sort of collaboration around this. But my guess is the the Democrats want to make sure that they can get to get the evidence they need, um, and they're, they're wary of they're wary of sort of doing any kinds of deals. I'm not sure that's the best course. That's a political judgment.
1: Uh, again, because I want people to understand what these things can sound like and how they sound currently. Uh, Ellie, play 10 first. That's President of the United States, Donald Trump, in the Roosevelt Room uh, this week, October 7th. And then after that, we're going to play Bill Clinton, number 13, Ellie. That's October 8th. 1998. Well, first of all, the impeachment uh, inquiry is a scam. The conversation that I had with the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, was a very good con- It was a very cordial, very good conversation. The mistake they made, the opponents, the opposition, the Democrats, the radical left, deep state, whatever you want to call them, they came out with a whistleblower report before they saw the conversation. Had they waited one day, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have made a fool out of herself, and she would have been able to say what I said because when she saw it, she said, "This is not what the whistleblower said. I will do what I can to help to ensure this is constitutional, fair, and timely. Uh, ultimately, it is in the hands of the Congress. I don't think it's appropriate to comment further today personally i'm I am fine i have I have surrendered this. This is beyond my control. I have to work on. What I can do, what I can do is to do my job for the American people. Political actors speak to their own best interest and best benefit. President Trump has a unique way of speaking on his behalf, calling the impeachment inquiry a scam, calling the Speaker of the House a fool. Bill Clinton, writing at a much higher approval rating at the time, was actually, as you could hear, hear, much softer, more deferential to the Congress. I've surrendered this. I want to make sure it's done constitutionally fair, and I want to work on behalf of the American public. The contrast in sound is, I think, notable because these are the two principles involved, meaning the two presidents. Uh, Back when you were working for Ken Starr, did you have any... Memories of how President Clinton approached this?
2: Well, he had a formidable sort of army of good lawyers that were working on this um, pretty much full time, I presume, and there was a lot of back and forth between the office and uh, and the the, the White House. But as I said earlier, this was kind of below the the radar as compared to now, and I think the theory probably was he's going to go on with the work of the presidency and have this kind of go along side by side, so it wasn't this sense of a sort of fight from, from the get-go. And also, I mean, Bill Clinton was a lawyer, is a lawyer, and it's really important to understand the reason why we have a three-branch system of government, which is to avoid not having an imperial presidency. And And some people understand that regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it's not good for anyone uh, to have an office of the presidency that has virtually no boundaries. And, I mean, the framers understood this. The first whistleblower act actually preceded the United States. States Constitution it was passed by the Continental Congress before the ratification of the Constitution itself it's that foundational to the idea that you know get, knowing what your government up is up to is absolutely critical to making sure that there's accountability
1: I want to hear I want to have our audience hear one more sound bite about the here and now because this has drawn a tremendous amount of criticism from the president this is Adam Schiff chairman of the House Intelligence Committee September 26 he is in his words, describing what he thinks the country ought to conclude about the summary released of the phone call in question between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Well, it reads like a classic organized crime shakedown, shorn of its rambling character, and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates We've been very good to your country. Very good. No other country has done as much as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favor I want from you, though. And I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent. Understand lots of it. Comfortable with that?
2: you know that's that is a reframing of the letter in the way politicians do i think what i tell people uh, my students i'm a law professor and i tell people that i come in contact with it's important for us in this day of an onslaught of information, a lot of it that's incorrect. To actually go and read the primary sources. So, if, if there's a question on whether that's accurate, don't take my word for it. Don't take your word for it. Sorry, don't I, Major. Don't take some politicians' word for it. Don't take some top politicians' word for it. The politicians are are not. You know, they're not our best friends. Uh, anyone. They're they're they um, for their own political careers. Some are more have more integrity than others. Um, but it's really government by we the people, and I think we've gotten away from that. We're so into Team Red or Team Blue, but it really should be you know team each other, and we should all be skeptical of politicians. And as I suggested, go and read read this stuff for yourself and make your own conclusions. Americans are pretty smart. That's
1: Kim Whaley. We're back for segment four on this ongoing conversation as we learn and try to understand more about impeachment as a construct and a process. Major Garrett with you, back. In a moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Il Canale in Georgetown. My pizza's arrived. Fantastic as always. Kim Whaley's beautiful salad with grilled salmon, I'm sure, is excellent. Uh, It looks incredibly healthy. Uh, (laughs) It's perfect. 700 times more healthy than my platter of meat lovers' pizza. So I don't want to leave uh, our dear audience with the impression that I am uh, full of uh, Google-eyed uh, nostalgia for the impeachment eras of Nixon or Clinton and suggesting that they were not full of some strong personalities and some loud argumentative moments. They were. Let's play one.
0: Just, uh, I asked you a wait, question. The the Mr. Wilson. Exactly Mr. Wilson, please. Mr. Wilson. Excuse me, Mr. Chairman. I don't
1: want to gavel was used just then. Mr. Ehrlichman was in the middle of an answer. I, I don't think it's unfair no, we'll wasn't to, to let the witness, excuse me, Mr. Dash, may I finish? To let the witness answer the question and then if it's inappropriate and
0: unresponsive to resolve the matter well, Mr. Then. Thompson, I don't want to get in debate with you, but so far we've not had answers. We've had speeches and well, I that's want your,
1: an that's your conclusion, Mr. Dash, and we're not here for your conclusion. Well, an we're here to listen to the witness. I want an answer and I don't want counsel to Wait. interfere with the answer. Wait a minute, I think the chap can straighten up all of this controversy. <laughs> All right. I mentioned a moment ago that Sam Irvin's voice could be calming and, in the case, clearly humorous. Let me identify who, the, who you, all, you heard from there. So when you heard one senator jump in, that was an actor, Fred Dalton Thompson, who became a senator. He was on the Watergate committee. Sam Dash, Mr. Dash, was the lead attorney for Sam Irvin's majority Democratic side. They were talking to John Ehrlichman, then a White House aide. And I just want to remind ourselves, as I remind me, yes, people yelled about this. It was a big deal. People yelled about the Clinton impeachment. People are yelling now. I don't want to suggest that they didn't then, and only now are we yelling. It's just that the magnitude and the frequency of our yelling now seems to be of a different character and a different volume. Kim Willie is our special guest, constitutional law expert. Uh, and also, let's just talk a little bit, because she had so much in-person legal experience with it. The Clinton matters were described by the defenders of Bill Clinton as a private matter that Congress was over-obsessed with, meaning an affair with a White House intern that grew out of a long-running and never-ending investigation into a land deal otherwise known as Whitewater. And yet, Chairman Henry Hyde of the Judiciary Committee said they were public acts. There was obstruction of justice because the president did not tell the truth under oath, which every American is required to do, And there were attempts to get witnesses to do the same. And that wasn't, in fact, a cover-up.
2: Yeah, certainly there were, both for Nixon and for Clinton, issues with witness tampering, at least in the articles of impeachment, obstruction of justice. Those are very, very serious issues, and people need to understand why they're serious. We can't have a criminal justice system that functions in a fair way if people are allowed to bully and distort the evidence and get what they want by virtue of strong-arming and bribes and things like that. That's why we have obstruction of justice, and we just had this conversation recently in connection with the Mueller report. The difference, however, um, Nixon and the, our current situation with Mr. Trump involve interference in the core electoral process. What appears to be with Trump um, is sort of using the Office of the presidency for his own personal gain in the next election, taking the power of his office, withholding potentially 400 million dollars in aid um, to basically strong arm for his, in his favor, in his personal favor. So I think there is a, a difference um, of degree probably between Clinton and how it started. That is, he he lied in a deposition, a civil deposition. I'm not that's absolutely not okay and the way he uh, things went down with Miss Lewinsky was not okay of course that was all abhorrent behavior but I'll tell you from practice that that's not something that doesn't happen every day in the in the private world not everyone only one person on the planet can actually abuse their power of office um, to gain an advantage in an election
1: And when the president says I was merely trying to have a candid conversation about ferreting out corruption is that a defense?
2: Well, defense, that's a question, uh, you know, in in the legal context, we're not talking about a crime. But it seems like we have, um, as I tell my students, there's something called circumstantial evidence. I know it rained because the, the ground is wet. And then there's direct evidence. I see it raining, right? And some people believe circumstantial evidence is less persuasive than direct evidence, but both are admissible in court. Here we actually have a a summary of the president saying, do me a favor, though. Um, Most lawyers in the criminal context or civil context would consider that really, really damaging evidence.
1: If you were a part of this uh, from a legal perspective and wanted to know everything about this, would you accept the summary released by the White House? But would you demand the tape itself if if it existed?
2: There's many more things than the summary of the White House that I would demand. But absolutely, there are ellipses in that summary. Um, The White House volunteered that summary. That's quite unusual. In, in any legal process, usually you have to ask for it, sometimes demand it with the power of the court behind them. Before the whistleblower complaint came out, here we have the summary, and then everything came about the summary. That's a little self-serving. As a lawyer, I'd be concerned about that. And I think as, as is happening, everything in the whistleblower complaint, everyone who was involved, Rudy Giuliani, the, the attorney general of the United States, um, Pompeo, all of these people optimally would be, taught, would be spoken to.
1: One of the things that emerged during the Clinton process was Democrats said, look, do we really have to impeach the president for this? Can't we just censure him? Tell my audience what that is.
2: Well, censure is sort of, I think, the proverbial slap on the wrist. That's not in the Constitution either. Um, I do think, from a constitutional perspective, it's important to have boundaries and to enforce them, even if you don't pull the nuclear level, which would be impeachment. So we know this from personal experience. If there's a red light or there's a a red light camera and you run it and you don't get get a ticket— then you got away with it. It's the same thing for the president's office, or even if you know you can park in a, in a no-parking zone, but you never get a ticket, you could park there for a year. You're violating the law every day. So for purposes of the institution of the presidency, there has to be consequences, or we don't have rules anymore. And so I do think a censure goes in that direction. Doing nothing is deeply troubling as a matter of constitutional structure.
1: The president says the House of Representatives under... The leadership of Speaker Pelosi hand out subpoenas like their cookies. The White House has now made it clear, until such time as there is a vote, it will not comply. Does this mean we're going straight to federal courts to adjudicate this?
2: Typically, that is absolutely where it would go. Um, it's given, as I said, we have direct evidence that is coming out, or transcript of the summary of the president's own dialogue. That uh, theoretically that Congress could decide to just talk to witnesses that the White House does not control, gather their evidence from private parties or people within the government that are willing to talk. The president can't tell someone not to talk. That's They make a personal judgment not to. But certainly in this moment, saying impeachment's unconstitutional, we are you know across-the-board not going to answer any inquiry because it's an illegitimate inquiry that the only way to get around that is to go to a court have a court say you know what it's legitimate it's in the constitution then we'd have a court order then the question really becomes do they comply with the court order if we were in a world where court orders were not complied with not just congressional subpoenas but court orders were not complied with by a coordinate branch of government that would be extraordinarily problematic
1: and that is where we will leave it Kim Wheelie, thanks so much for having us, for, for being with us, and giving us your expertise on all, as many issues as we could touch upon. We got to go down memory lane a little bit. I hope you enjoyed all those nostalgic references to Sam Irvin, Peter Rodino, Henry Hyde, Bill Clinton, Joe Lockhart, Mike McCurry, etc., etc. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin. Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover